Hello and welcome to episode three of the Language of Songs with John Vanek. Uh, Language of Songs is a podcast where I look at the way that languages influences songs, the way that songs have influenced language and even literature, and that wonderful interplay between songs and language and written language and recorded language. Um, as I always say, there's no reason why a song has to have great words in it or great lyrics, um, but they very often do, and that's where it gets interesting. I'm going to be looking a bit at lyricism in songs and in literature, a very interesting area because they kind of mean different things in both genres, and also want to have a quick look at um, one of the songs by Amy Goddard, an artist I've name-checked in previous episodes and whose work I, I rate highly. I'm going to be playing a bit of a song of hers called Near the Sea. And uh, Amy has very, very kindly well, given me permission to play the, the song, but also to interview her for a forthcoming Language of Songs podcast. So really looking forward to that. And don't forget, I'm always looking out for people's views on this area. And um, if you join the Language of Songs Facebook group, you will be made most welcome. So I look forward to hearing from you. It is mainly for people who want to look into this whole area of language of songs. I don't tend to post people's videos, um, so if anyone puts a video up there, it may well be taken down, but I choose very carefully. Um, so we keep on theme. And when it comes to lyricism in songs and indeed in literature and poetry, as I said, we're dealing with very different ways of classifying those, those things. In songs, anything with words in it will be lyrical by its very nature. It has lyrics, however simple and stripped down those lyrics might be. Um, whereas in poetry, there are people who are classified as lyrical poets, and that can be because they themselves have classified themselves in that way. Uh, for example, Coleridge, back in the 19th century, and Wordsworth wrote a book called Lyrical Ballads, where they consciously wanted to draw upon and promote the language that maybe people who don't have access to literature, who didn't read at the time, used. So it could be rhymes, it could be poems and songs and ballads. Ballads are really important and go right through the whole of English literature and, of course, folk music and all kinds of music. Actually, last week we looked at that um, ballad of Lady Franklin and I didn't quote from the one of the verses, but it's been so influential on so many songwriters um, that I think I'm going to just quote it from The Ballad of Lady Franklin. And it's, uh, it's, it goes like this. We were homeward bound one night on the deep. Swinging in my hammock, I fell asleep. I dreamed a dream and thought it true concerning Franklin and his gallant crew. And uh, it's a lovely little lyric from, from that um, Lady Franklin's Lament. That's the right title. Of course, Dylan took that straight away. As I mentioned last week, I dreamed a dream. Um, and concerning my first few friends is his way of re rewriting those lines on his song, which is called Bob Dylan's Dream. So he's very true to the original that he he lifts, basically, because it is about a kind of dream that Lady Franklin kind of recalls about losing her husband when he went on a voyage to the South Pole, I think it is. Um, so that's that. So ballads and... Lyrical Ballads, I think it was called, by Wordsworth and Coleridge. They deliberately wanted to draw upon that tradition of song and rhyme and, if you like, the, the stuff that people who didn't read um, either invented or they re-sort re, re of 
said <laughs> they'd used in their lives. Um, but that was because they were young men who were quite revolutionary in their outlook and they kind of looked to the, um, well, to the French Revolution as one of their sort of powerful influences. But it doesn't mean that um, scholars have classified people like Coleridge or Wordsworth as lyrical poets. Um, you know, that wouldn't really be the classification that scholars would choose. Um, there are some poets who are classified that way, and it doesn't really depend on how much the stuff rhymes or whatever. That. There's a lot of poet that, poetry that rhymes, um, but it isn't classified as lyrical. Um, but if you look at somebody like Dylan Thomas, and 20th century Welsh poet, that he's always, nearly always thought of as a lyrical poet um, because the resonance of the language is so powerful and the way he invokes seems to invoke phenomena through his poetry. And it's so powerful that um, it's called lyrical. And one of the kind of features, I think, of lyrical poetry is that it doesn't always make sense. It seems to come from some sort of deep well of the imagination where things are invoked. And in a very famous poem of Dylan Thomas's called Fern Hill, he writes about or invokes the phenomena and the experience of his childhood um, you know, the, the sleeping in the farm at night, uh, being in the fields in Wales. And I'll just give the first verse of <coughs> excuse me, Fern Hill. Now as I was young and easy under the apple boughs, about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green, the night above the dingles starry, time let me hail and climb, golden in the heydays of his eyes, and honoured among wagons I was prince of the apple towns, and once below a time I lordly had the trees and leaves trail with daisies and barley down the rivers of the windfall light. So it's just so powerful. And sort of the meaning comes through the the kind of mesmerism and the hypnotism and the seduction of the language. You're not going to go into a courtroom as a lawyer and argue your case with language like, like that. But if you did do so, you might just win the jury over simply because of the mesmeric power of his poetic rhetoric. And I've got a windfall, to quote Dylan Thomas, given to me today because I'm going to discuss a bit about Leonard Cohen. And he's very, very, very appropriate for this, because not only did he have two, uh, at least two books of poetry out before he ever recorded any of his songs, he also had two novels out, and he had quite a following as a young young man, as a poet, um, and novelist to some extent, but he certainly started off as a poet um, in the town he grew up in, Montreal in Canada. And the two books um, that I kind of can remember offhand are Spice Box of Earth and Let Us Compare Mythologies. There's two of his early collections of poems. And he was extremely lyrical in those poems. It's very lyrical poetry. Um, I don't mean it's his songs written up. That's, that's not it. It's very lyrical literature. And uh, he became more and more and more lyrical in his songs uh, the more his career went on. I'm not sure if he was quite as lyrical in his poetry as, as he went on, because he carried on writing poetry right through his career. But those early works are the ones that are most vibrant with lyricism. And I'm going to read a poem called For EJP. It's a dedication to somebody whose initials are EJP. And it's uh, just read one stanza, which is... Um, from one of those books, I can't recall which, is either The Spice Box of Earth or Let Us Compare Mythologies, and it goes like this. 
I once believed a single line in a Chinese poem could change forever how blossoms fell and that the moon itself climbed on the grief of concise weeping men to journey over cups of wine. I thought invasions were begun for crows to pick at a skeleton, dynasties sown and spent to serve the language of a fine lament. I thought governors ended their lives as sweetly drunken monks telling time by rain and candles, instructed by an insect's pilgrimage across the page. All this so one might send an exile's perfect letter to an ancient hometown friend. And that's part of Leonard Cohen's 4EJP poem. Um, hopefully showing what a fantastically lyrical poet he certainly started off as. Um, his songs, the power of his language in his songs, is pretty indisputable. Um, we only have to think of Hallelujah, covered by so many people. Um, and, of course, Leonard Cohen's knowledge and his well-readness and his his knowledge, really, of, of all kinds of areas of writing and the arts. Now, he did do a degree in English in um, McGill University, I think it was. And, of course, he had the chance to go on to do, um, like, MPhil, PhD, but it wasn't much point because he'd had published books, published novels and published poetry out by that time. So what was he going to study for his doctorate? Uh, his own work? Well, there's no need. He's a published writer, which is what most academics would love to be, um, and published creative writers. And um, so we got this knowledge. I mean, if you look at Hallelujah, there was so much in there, the Old Testament, King David, um, you know, gazing at Bathsheba on the roof and all the kind of trouble that leads to in the Bible. And um, Leonard Cohen kind of relates that to his own love life and all that sort of thing. It's just a very, very powerful song. Um, so we've got quite obvious example, really, of a poet and a songwriter who borrows freely from both, both kind of genres because um, he can, he can. <laughs> he's, got, he's got those skills. And it's interesting that I both consider those early poetry of, of Leonard Cohen's lyrical. If I was going to classify it, say it's great lyrical poetry. Um, but as I said, these classifications don't tend to get given to poets until after they've died, when the scholars come in and kind of look at it and sort of put them in certain boxes. They make, a lot of it's to do with the, the history of literature. And uh, somebody like Coleridge and Wordsworth would have been classed as romantics. They would have been part of the early part of the romantic movement and tied in with people like um, Keats and Shelley. And a lot of it's to do with the subject matter. A lot of it's to do with the evocativeness of the writing. It isn't just Byronic verse, verse form, or like Dryden or even Alexander Pope. Um, it's got this kind of vibrant, resonant quality of language and not always language which is logical as i said you couldn't use dylan thomas's fernhill in a court of law because it wouldn't persuade people through logical argument it might well have the same effect through sheer mesmerizing hypnosis of the language um so wordsworth and coleridge even though they wrote a book called lyrical ballads would not really be described by scholars as lyrical poets. They're called the Romantics, and that's where they sort of fit in with the Romantic movement. Uh, they're seen as the beginning of it. And then if we go to a poet like William Blake, um, well, I love Blake. Now, he was a man who was very well read and understood the arts, never did a kind of formal 
qualification or university qualification or anything like that. And he drew freely on things like nursery rhymes and ballads. Um, and he was very at home in that form. And he's got the songs of innocence and experience of very, very simple rhyming forms, um, you know, which would kind of unfold his entire vision. And the song, the introduction to the songs of innocence and experience is a poem, Hear the voice of the bard, who present, past and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked amongst the ancient trees. Uh, how do you do that stuff? The holy word that walked amongst the ancient trees. He's drawing on all this stuff, this mythology, which is what he was really into, the mythology of ancient Albion, which is England, and he evokes this thing and talks of innocence as like a kind of biblical innocence before before the fall of Adam and Eve, and he kind of evokes that, and innocence and experience are kind of, I suppose they're kind of eras of the mythology and eras of the mind to do with a time of innocence and following a time of experience, um, followed by a time of experience. So Blake freely draws on those. He he wouldn't be called a lyrical poet, but there's nobody more lyrical than, than Blake. But he's really seen as the very, very first of the Romantic movement. That's how he'd be described, the first, almost like the first English Romantic poet. And the great thing about these poets who do write very lyrically um, and in a very song-like way is that they're a real gift to songwriters. Um, I've set that a, um, the introduction to the songs of innocence and experience. I set it to music. Uh, so I've written a song um, with those words, hear the voice of the bard who present, past and future sees. And I've got a chance to play a bit. I'll do so in the podcast. Um, and of course, that's a gift because if you want to find some great lyrics, well, why not follow the great people who've written great lyrics? And... Blake has been put into music by many people, most notably by, I think it's Parry, isn't it? Was it William Parry, who, at least a century after Blake's death, <laughs> put the words of Jerusalem to song, and that's become that famous song. You know, is it the English rugby? That's the kind of theme tune. It's often kind of put forward, oh, that should be the, na the national anthem. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green and was the holy lamb of God in English pleasant pastures seen? And that's, Blake is pretty much taking a kind of ownership of a biblical landscape for England. Uh, so he's putting, a bit like Rastafarianism, would consider Ethiopia to be a, bit, a biblical land. And um, there's no reason why they shouldn't. Um, and there's no reason why Blake shouldn't appropriate um, Albion, his mythical Albion, as a biblical land. And he does so, does, and that's, that's his thing, his mythology. Um, so uh, Blake, I found Blake great for um, writing a song because I had a great lyric from William Blake and clearly Mr Parry must have felt the same when he put Jerusalem to music. Um, the very first song I wrote, interestingly, was not my own lyrics. It was a poem by a very lyrical poet, uh, Brian Patton, who's, who's still around. And it's a poem called Song. Um, she keeps kingfishers in their cages and goldfish in their bowls. She is lovely and is afraid of such things as growing old. It might even be growing cold. Um, that's amazing. So that was well, that was another gift, wasn't it? You know, couldn't come up with any lyrics myself. And I wrote... Uh, lyrics to I wrote music for that poem entitled Song by Brian Patton and 
another poet I can think of in that context, who again, he wouldn't be considered a lyrical poet, but he wrote an entire book called Words for Music, perhaps, which is like a kind of bit of a nudge um, for composers and people who could write music to set poems, these poems to music. And that's William Butler Yeats, the great Irish poet, of course, Nobel Prize winner as well. Um, so we got so much lyricism in poetry, so much lyricism in songs. And one of the reasons why you don't get um, these kind of very strict classifications at the time of a writer's life, when their life tend to happen afterwards, when the scholars kind of get together and work out these categories. But of course, in music, um, people can't, they can't, they have to, you have to brand yourself. Um, there's so many niches now in music, with music being online that you have to find your niche, you have to say, well, I fit into this, and and then there's my little micro-niche within that niche. So if somebody plays heavy metal, uh, they've no kind of self-consciousness about describing themselves as a heavy metal act, um, because branding's everything in music, whereas in literature it's a bit more of a slow sort of unfolding. And um, so you've got these wonderful people like Dylan Thomas, William Blake, Leonard Cohen, great lyrical poets, um, whether they're described as lyrical poets or not is another matter. Um, I'm going to leave it at that for this week. I'm going to play a bit of Amy Goddard's Near the Sea. And I think there'll even be a little bit of time to play part of that song I wrote, which William Blake so kindly provided the words for introduction to the songs of innocence and experience. Or I call it Hear the Voice of the Bard. Thanks for listening. Please do give your feedback on the Language of Songs Facebook group and join the group if you, if you feel so inclined. You'll be made most welcome. And uh, I'm John Vanek, signing off from episode three of the Language of Songs podcast. Bye-bye. <laughs>